a dark subject, and it's getting darker as we descend even to more of the abysses of hell. But I'm going to begin again with our uh, Lenten prayer. So if you'll bow with me. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week, uh, we were in the eighth circle of hell. There are nine. And so we have sort of quickly gone through some of the circles. They're all important to know, but the issues get really, really serious from this point on. To the point when we finally get down into the ninth circle of hell, we will see the common denominator among all these inhabitants. Now that's going to be epitomized in Satan and what Dante depicts to be the destiny of Satan. But in the last time... If you remember, we were on the back of this monster called Grayon, who is the symbol of fraud. And with Dante and Virgil, he's uh, flying around and he comes to an edge of uh, the, the, the inferno, a cliff, and he immediately drops down. And as he does, he begins to stop at several ditches. All right? Those ditches are called Malaborga in the inferno. And there are eight of these ditches in this eighth circle of the inferno. Each of the ditch has a particular vice. And Dante and Virgil will stop and look, and they're often surprised who they see there in that particular ditch. All along, though, there are these malabranches, as you see up here. That's called, literally, that's called evil claw, evil claw. I looked around to try to find a pretty depiction, a pretty good depiction of them. You can see they have wings and they have claws, and they are the demons that inhabit this part of the inferno. And as Virgil and Dante enter into this area, these demons are flapping around them, and they accompany them as they descend down into the inferno. And each of these ditches has a particular demon that guards it. All right, and a couple of them are pretty interesting, and I was. I found a picture of one of them. I'll talk about him. His name is called Curly Beard when we get to it. But these demons here are doing the work of hell upon these people who have put themselves. Let me just reiterate a point that, that I started off with. I think even though this is a medieval text, published in, I mean finished in 1321, has a lot of kind of terminology and sensitivities that you know, we don't have. But there's profound truth, I think, in what Dante's Inferno and, and the rest of them, Purgatory and, and Paradise, are teaching us. And that is, we reap what we sow. We create things in our vices that eventually come back and harm us and harm other people. That the vices that we may think are rather trivial and we can kind of dismiss as maybe just human frailty or somebody else forced us or society made us do this. In the end, though, have disastrous consequences upon our lives and upon others. Each of these people that Dante depicts there in the inferno are reaping what they sow. The punishment that they have in hell is not unjust, capriciously, arbitrarily decided by God. God's wrath, I think we talked about this last time, God's wrath is not just some sort of fickle disposition that God has, but rather God's wrath is the response that God has to human vice. Not just trivial vice, but very pernicious vice. And so in hell, what they are experiencing 
is what they have brought upon themselves. So there is a sense of justice even in hell. All right. Okay. We're in Canto 18. And in the first circle here, or ditch, that we've gone into in Canto uh, 18, we see these panderers and seducers. Now, it's kind of interesting. Why would he want to put these people in hell? Panderers and seducers. We don't use the word pander very much. We use the word seducer a lot. They're, they're interchangeable. A pander would be someone who sort of sets someone up, solicits somebody, cajoles them, and then takes advantage of them. A pander is someone who misuses a relationship, primarily in the examples he's going to give were sexually, that brings harm upon somebody else's life. All right. So there's a special place in hell for these kinds of people. All right. Once again, I've given you sort of the summary of the the condition and then the punishment here for these people. First of all, and everywhere along that hideous track, I saw horned demons with enormous lashes move through those souls, scourging them on their back. The the panderers and the seducers are sticky. That's that's how he depicts them. They're sticky. They grab people and stick them. They get them. There's like glue on them. They somehow or another connive, weasel around, and they'll get somebody. They'll stick them, and they've got them. They set them up, they abuse them, and then they discard them. All right? These sticky seducers here, the punishment that they have, they're in the, and I think it's pretty insightful. It's graphic, but it's pretty insightful, is that they're in this ditch. These demons walk around with hooks, sort of spears that have hooks, and the hooks are sticky. And so whenever one of these, these seducers come by, they'll reach out and they'll grab that, that person, the pander, and, and rip on them. And they can't get it off because it has stuck to them. So what they thought they could manipulate by sticking, they are now suffering the punishment by being stuck here by these demons. Um, I'll come back to this man in just a minute. Well, I'll go, no, I'll go ahead and mention him. Uh, uh, we don't know anything about this, but this is a story that in some ways has been played out in many ways. This particular man, Fidicio, I guess is the right way to say it, he um, was there in Bologna, and he was a very prominent man, uh, head of the Gulf Party. Remember, there were two different rival groups. Uh, Dante himself is of the Gulf family. And it, he was an ambitious man. In order to get the favor of the Marquis of Esta, uh, which is... He mentions it here, the lust of the Marquis. Here, the Marquis was willing to sell favors. And so, Verdicchio set up his sister. See if I can pronounce this. My Texas accent gets in the way of everything. Gishlobila. All right. Um, he sets up his sister and pimps her to the Marquis of Estate. And he is then able to get favors here by pimping his sister. Uh, the Marquis of Estate here gives him what he asked for. Here he is, uh, in a sense, compromised the integrity of the sister in order to promote himself. Well, and as he spoke, one of those lashes fell across his back and a demon cried, Move on, you pimp! There are no women here to sell. That's his punishment. He's sticky. He stuck his sister. He pimped his sister in order for his own advantage. Now in hell, he's getting stuck by these lashes out here by this demon. I couldn't find a better picture. Uh, uh, maybe if I had a better access someplace else, I could. But uh, th these are the panders. This is a, a more 
graphic depiction of what they're going through. You see them naked, and I know it's not very good, but these are demons up, up here that are lashing out of them the whole time. It's a horrifying sight. <clears throat> now, let's look at the flatterers. This is also in Canto 18. Flattery. Interesting why this would be down in hell. You can go to hell for flattery. What's wrong with flattery? Uh, here's what he says. Once there, I peered down and I saw long lines of people in a river of excrement that seemed the overflow of the world's latrines. This is the consequence of flattery. But the people who try to manipulate others by flattery, their punishment is to live in the waste that the words originated in. In flattery, it's like excrement. It's like refuse. It's like, well, you, I mean, think about it. All right. All right. So in, in order to manipulate people, I flatter them. What I'm really creating is my own waste that I will live in. The words become excrement. And then the consequence, these people here are stuck in this lake of excrement. And then he, beating himself on his clown, said, Down to this have the flatteries I sowed, the living sunk me here among the dead. Now, I found a picture. It's one of the inhabitants that is. It, again, I apologize. It's not a very good one. But, uh, the, the, the particular people that... Uh, Dante uh, has as representative of flatterers are not the seducers like the previous person that these people are politicians it's political corruption they're able to manipulate people politically with flattery and Dante puts them in hell for that because their words don't mean anything they don't carry substance they're they're just vapid they're images without content they are manipulative. They're designed to be that way. And in the end, when you separate the words from the content, they stink. They really do. Because in the end, you realize, I've been set up. We've been manipulated by these politicians. Now, you and I could probably sit here for at least 30, maybe 60 days and give one example after the next of political flattery in our culture. Um, just as an aside, uh, I don't, you may not share this with me, but... I cannot read any more editorials about one party against another. I just can't do it. And I've got pretty strong political convictions. But our political parties are using flattery and anti-flattery to really try to set our political environment. And again, I'm not saying one's better or one worse than another. I think they're all equally guilty with this. And it, to me, it's disturbing. And uh, it, it's annoying that so much of our society has been swayed and manipulated by just... Words that don't mean anything. They're designed just to manipulate people, to get you to believe that... How many politicians basically promise alchemy? That is, they can change lead into, change lead into gold or, or cold fusion. They can solve all these problems. All of us ought to just say, well, look, remember, Dante has a place in hell for that. Just be careful. You are creating excrement with that kind of verbiage. Because we know it's just flattery. It's just flattery. You think that will change anybody? Huh? Why should we warn them? Why should we warn them? Oh. Because... <laughs> well, all right. Well, okay. Uh, maybe that's uh, the only way to handle that. Um, well, be that as it may. Um, now, he ends this canto 
in my opinion, with a humorous note. Uh, Let me read it to you. I didn't write it down here, but he says this. Um, It is the whore, Theus, who told her lover when he sent to ask her, this is the lover asking the whore, do you thank me much? And the whore says, much, nay, past all believing. And with this, let us turn from the side of this abyss. That's how it ends. Now, there are two ways to interpret that little exchange there. Uh, one of them is that the whore, Theus, is part of a story from Eunuch. And in it, her lover sends a slave to, um, to thank her for the services that she has given him. And so, when it says here, do you thank me much, what it refers to is the gift of the slave. And her reply is obviously ironical. Much? Nay, past all believing. Okay, maybe so. Maybe that's what it meant by it. But I think Dante is being a little more um, acerbic, a little more um, um, sarcastic with this. I think it refers, we're all adults here, but to the sexual favors that were being going on. So, the lover says, do you thank me much? Like, don't you think I was great? <laughs> and her response to that is that much, nay, past all believing, which is obviously sarcastic. Those who want to sort of promote themselves just by flattery. Don't you think I was great? Don't you think I'm wonderful? You only get that kind of anti-flattery in response. All right, that's my sort of um, juvenile interpretation of that. Okay, let's move on. Unless you have a comment that you want to make. We're going to move into Canto 19, which I think is one of the most interesting in the whole book. All right. These are called the Simonatics. This refers to Simon Magus. He is a person notoriously depicted in Acts chapter 8. He, is a, um, he was a magician, and he becomes a converted Christian, converts into Christianity. And the very first thing he does to Peter is that he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. And he gets cursed for that. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. But he thought he could. See, he had been a magician trying to manipulate things through his his chants and incantations and so on. Then when he becomes a Christian, he thinks he can carry that attitude over. Just as I tried to reap things by being a magician, I'll reap things now being a Christian, and so I'm going to buy the Holy Spirit. What's his price? And he gets cursed by the apostle for doing that. Here, uh, Dante uses that as a symbol to refer to some pretty notorious people in the Middle Ages. All right. Simon Magus, you wretched crew who follow him, pandering for silver and gold, the things of God which should be wedded to love and righteousness, O thieves for hire. What this refers to is that the practice of simony, and that is, Bishoprics, cardinals, even papacies were sold. They were bought by people. The rich here were dominating the 14th century church because they were buying the eternal life. They were buying years out of purgatory. They were buying, uh, like I said, powerful positions. And uh, the church probably in the 14th century was as corrupt as it's ever been. And, you know, quite honestly, we can understand why there was a reformation because the church in Europe at that time was just imbued with corruption. And a lot of it, well, maybe most of it, but there were theological issues too. But as far as the structure of the church goes, it was because of this practice of simony. It became accepted to have graft. 
to have simony, to buy offices. It was, it was understandable that if you wanted to get ahead in the church, come up with the money and I'll give you a cardinal. All right. From every mouth, a sinner's legs stuck out as far as the calf. The hose were all ablaze and the joints of the legs quivered and writhed about. This is one of the most famous uh, etchings by Gustav Dürer, who uh, probably has done more on the Inferno, or the whole, whole uh, Paradise Law, I mean, the Divine Comedy, than anyone else. But look at this. All right, this refers to the baptistry at Dante's home church, the San Giovanni Church. And in this baptistry, there are hoes. And these simniacs are stuck in those holes, heads in. Their feet are stuck up, and demons come by with little forks and start just clawing at the soles of their feet. Alright? Now you may think, what's the significance of that? Alright, remember the principle is you reap what you sow. Your vices create your own punishment. Alright, these people were corrupting the sacred. And Dante knew that. They were corrupting the the churches, the bishoprics, the priesthood, the papacy. These people were using the sacred for their own advantage. In an ingenious way, what Dante does is that he uses a sacred object, a baptistry, here to mock them. They're head down, feet up. If you, This is my interpretation. If you corrupt the sacred, the sacred will end up corrupting you. If you violate the laws of God, then you will be violated by those very laws. If I misuse those, the, the sacraments, the, 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 the calling, the place of worship for my own benefit, then in the end, I will be corrupted by the sacred. I think I might be able to manipulate the sacred for my own advantage, but what will happen is that it will mock me in the end, and that's exactly what happens here. Now, as Dante and Virgil are walking into this area... Uh, they meet some interesting people. The first one is this guy, Pope Boniface VIII. I've already, I think, mentioned Pope Boniface VIII. Um, he he was one of the most corrupt of the popes, a uh, very despicable character, and he reigned for about uh, about nine years, from 1294 to 1303. So there's a little overlap with Dante here, and so Dante knew of him. And uh, he was not a spiritual figure at all, not, not educated, incredibly immoral. And he claimed that once he became pope, that all the wealth of the church was his. It all belonged to him. In fact, he even bought the papacy by simony. He had enough money, his family did, that he purchased it. Just like Simon Magus thought he could purchase the Holy Spirit, Boniface VIII thought he could purchase the, you know, the, the, the Sea of Peter, the, the, the Seat of Peter. And he continued that kind of financial corruption. And he, uh, a number of these other popes, was notorious for nepotism. He created all kinds of positions just for his family. And they became wealthy because they were cardinal or bishop of a diocese and so on. This was a favoritism uh, sort of scheme that he came up with. Well, Dante puts him in hell for that. No matter how powerful, wealthy prestigious, credentialed you may be, if you corrupt the sacred, the sacred will corrupt you. Alright, there's another pope down here. Clement V. Uh, kind of a stern looking person there. Who knows what he looked like, but that's what I found. 
um, he is also there, and um, he, uh, what he's famous or infamous for is that for a period of time, the papacy moved out of Rome to Avignon, France. And the reason why is that the king of France wanted not only the political center of Europe to be in France, but the religious center, the ecclesiastical center to be in France. And so he bought off Clement V. Clement V sold the bishop of Rome to move to the bishop of Avignon, France. And so for money, he transferred that. And uh, again, uh, it just showed the incredible corruption. And in Dante's viewpoint is that he will eventually reap what he has sowed. And so he is there with one of his feet sticking up in the air with these demons coming and raking them with claws. I think I'd mentioned this. It, you know, a pretty bold move to put some popes in hell uh, in his day. I mean, they were wealthy, they were powerful, they had an army, and they were probably people without scruples too. And here he is writing this book. Thankfully, he died <laughs> the year he finished writing it. Maybe that's what he planned. Uh, and he uh, has uh, these very seemingly impregnable people here suffering the consequences of their actions. No one is above God's law. Think of it like this. Uh, when was the Magna Carta written? Anyone 12, remember? 1215. That's right, 1215. I've seen a copy of it. Uh, I remember years ago, a copy was coming through the United States. We were in St. Louis, and I saw it there. And we've been to Salisbury, and there's a copy of the Magna Carta at Salisbury in England. The great significance of the Magna Carta is that even the king is under the law. It's probably one of the first political documents to state something like that. Well, here's what Dante is doing about a hundred years after the Magna Carta. Even the Pope is underneath God's law. No matter how, like I said, credentialed, privileged, positioned, powerful, wealthy you may be, you cannot use God's law for your own advantage. If you do, then eventually that will corrupt you. And this is what happens here. All right, now, here's another interesting group of people that he has down here. The fortune tellers and the diviners. These were people who told the future through all kinds of things. Uh, and he has some pretty interesting examples. I'll talk about a few of them in just a minute. But uh, they were who they thought they could predict the future. And in doing that, though, they get a special place in hell for Dante. And I, I'll try to unpack why he is so uh, you know, uh, critical of these people. But uh, their particular punishment, though, is interesting. As he says here, Observe how he has made a breast of his back in life he wished to see too far before him, and now he must crab backwards round this track. And I found a couple of, they're not really clear sort of depictions of this. That is, these people are naked, and it, it just use your imagination. Their heads are turned backwards, and their hands are turned backwards. And so they, they think they're going forward, but actually they're going backwards. They think they're walking directly ahead of them, but actually they're facing always behind. These people excuse me, who thought they knew the future and could predict it, but in the end they don't know anything and they only know what they thought they could get away from. They're trapped in their past. These are people who are always walking backwards. 
They claimed to have known the future, but they didn't. And their consequence is that they only suffer the failure of their past. All right, now, what's so significant about that? Why is that such an issue? Um, he mentions a few people here. Uh, he mentions a person named Arnus, who was a soothsayer who foretold the civil war between Caesar and Pompey and eventually Caesar's victory. I'm not really for sure why that's indicative of this as a punishment. Maybe he's just appealing to things that people know fairly well. But I want to explore what possible meaning is. Why pick on these people? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you read the horoscope every day or, or something like that. Uh, why, why is this so, so serious? Why is the right depiction of this somebody with their head turned backwards and their hand turned backwards and always walking their life? Anybody have an idea? Okay, well, let's see this in Dante's kind of worldview. Dante is thoroughly committed, and he's a great intellect and a great person of faith. He tries to explicate this constantly throughout the book, that the world is ordered in a certain way, God, nature, and humanity. And that order is good, and that God is at the center of that ordered universe, giving it meaning. We rightly understand the universe by rightly ordering our loves. The greatest love that we can have is towards God. The second greatest love that we have is towards people who bear the image of God. And then the third level of love is the love towards the world itself because it bears the handprint, the footprints of God. It reflects the goodness of God creating the world good. All right, so the world is orderly, but it's held together by divine providence. All right, a soothsayer, a diviner, a fortune teller here thinks they have discovered what holds the world together, what gives it meaning and purpose. And because of their sort of secret knowledge, they then can make predictions of the future without having to appeal to divine providence to do so. That's why this is a sin, a vice. That is, the soothsayer, the astrologist, whatever, they think they now know the mysteries of God. Rather than being relying and, and trusting upon divine providence, they are now trusting and reliant upon their own kind of mystical or magical insights. Okay, that, that has often been one of the criticisms of this. That is, it refers to the kind of, that maybe the arrogance and the assumption, I mean, how can you know the future by just reading the stars or by the tarot cards or by the throwing of the sticks and all that sort of stuff or the reading of you know, chicken entrails and so on? How can you know the future that way? The future is in God's hands. Divine providence is the center of the universe. Dante would say God is always ordering the world, even in light of the corruption of it, according to the tears of God, humanity, and nature. Now, I will venture out in here. Uh, you're more than welcome to or disagree with me on this, but I think in order to try to see some sort of truth to this, to what Dante is arguing about, let me refer to a book that I read when I was in college. This was one of the most influential things that people were reading back in those days. This, I graduated in 1973. And that was the book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Remember hearing about that book? By B.F. Skinner. Remember B.F. Skinner? Does that name ring a bell with you? Very famous behavioralist psychologist. He was a materialist. And that in his viewpoint, everything is materially organized by physical laws. There is no freedom, hence no human dignity. Everything follows physical causes. Who we are today can be completely 
understood and predicted if all we knew, I mean, if we were able to know the material causes prior to this moment. And Skinner felt that he could predict all human behavior that way. There were no mysteries, no sort of inexplicable features of human existence. Obviously, no God, no divine providence. Here, this behavioralist approach in which you could figure everything out according by sort of matter in motion following mechanical laws, all human behavior, is, and this is my humble interpretation, you may think it's a couple of stretches here to do that, but this is similar to a soothsayer predictor. That is, I can figure out everybody. I got you figured out. Your life is not really determined by divine providence. It's determined by my particular interpretation of things. I can make predictions about who we be and what we are and so on because I now know the right order of the universe rather than an order universe by God and rightly lived in according to love. We can do it in this kind of behaviorist interpretation. A lot of people do that in their own ways. So the essence of this is that the vice is when somebody thinks they can interpret the meaning of the world separate from divine providence separate from the rightly ordered life of love. And consequently, as he depicts them here, these people then are walking backwards. They don't really see in the future. They only look in the past. What do you think? Anybody have a comment about that? Well, a lot of people think that way. And there's, there's, I mean, there's nothing untrue about genetic research. There, what we're coming up with is really... Physiologically, the case. But then to say, in that we know it in this way, then we can predict all aspects of human life, that's where the hubris or the pride comes in. And that's what these people are being punished for. That is, I can understand human destiny, your life divorced from divine providence. Another example, um, I'll, I'll go over this one pretty quickly. Um, I remember uh, I had mentioned you several books that were really, really influential. The other one was, in fact, I might even referred to this at one of our earlier times, uh, was uh, I'm Okay, You're Okay by Harris. Remember any of you remember that book? I'm Okay, You're Okay. Uh, and, of course, a lot of us got interested in reading Marxism in those days. And I read a lot of Marxism when I was in college. Not that I became one, but I thought it was interesting. There might be something onto that. And you know, at the heart of Marxist, what was called dialectical materialism, analysis of human history, is that it is all predictable. Every bit of it is predictable. And he felt like he had come up with a scientific way to do this. That is, to understand human culture shaped by economies. Just as, let's say, a, a physicist may be able to understand the laws of physics and make predictions based upon that. Like, say, by the laws of gravity, we know what's going to happen. He felt like he had become, that he had found the rhyme and reason of human history. And that was with his, his notion of the dialectical material. Same idea. There's a hubris to this. There's an arrogance to this. To think that anyone can eliminate the mystery of human existence. Or, and this is, I guess, the blasphemous part of this, according to Dante, that is, we don't need divine providence to understand human destiny. And that's the sin of this, this, this particular ditch we're in. Okay, we're now in another ditch, and these are the grafters. Uh, graft. What's graft? Anybody? Give me a definition. Sorry? Yeah. Uh, taking things under the table, so to speak. Uh, trying to buy things off unjustly, unfairly. That's what graft is. Well, there's a deep, dark ditch for people like this. All right, and there they are. 
Then they rake him with more than a hundred hooks, bellowing, Here you dance below the covers. Graft all you can there. No one checks your books. So they are reaping what they sow. They cook the books, so to speak. They uh, falsify the numbers. They will give a little sort of graft here, a little graft there to get the contract, to get the position, to get the bishopric. They were doing all this, buying all things that really weren't part of what it's supposed to be. And uh, there's a special place in hell for people who practice graft. Um, Hold on one second. He refers here, just quickly, he refers to a particular historical episode of a, not a major, but it's, but also not just a trivial military conflict between uh, the people of Tuscan and then the people of Pisa. Here's what he says. So once I saw the Pisan infantry march out under truce from the fortress of Caprona, staring in fright, at the ranks of the enemies. And this refers to a particular battle when the Tuscan army sieged the city of Pisa. And they fought for a while, and the Pisans realized they were not going to win the battle, so they sued for peace. They surrendered, and they accepted the conditions. The Tuscan army allowed the Pisans infantry to leave the city. And they had this agreement, but as they were leaving, the uh, Tuscan army massacred all of them, and supposedly uh, Dante saw that. Uh, it, how that is necessary part of graft, I'm not really for sure, but here he puts these people in hell for doing that. All right, let's go to Canto 22. These are more grafters. I want to, uh, I'll come back to that reading just a minute. Now, here's one of the interesting demons that's found here in the Inferno. His name is the Curly Beard. And uh, like I said, I looked around. This is one of the Gustav Dürer's uh, etchings of him. You can kind of see a little beard of him over there across the lake. He is guarding this area of the grafters. And he's a particular vicious kind of demon. And as Virgil and uh, Dante, you can kind of see him up there on the right here over that, that ledge. They're terrified at looking at him. And he is taking gleeful delight here in ripping apart these grafters. All right. Here's the way he does it, though. This is once again really imaginative. I don't. I, I could have never come up with something like what Dante has here for these grafters. Okay. And as at the edge of a ditch, frogs squat about, hiding their feet and bodies in the water, leaving only their muzzles sticking out. So stood the sinners in the dismal ditch. But as Curly Beard approached, only a ripple showed where they had ducked back into the pitch. Well, and what he does, as soon as he finds ripples, he gets his hook, reaches down there and grabs the frog and pulls them up. All right, these are the grafters. They're the ones who lied, falsified the records. They're like frogs down in the water, hiding behind their lies, thinking they are being covered up, deceiving people. And they have to come up for air. And whenever they come up there, oh, curly beard. Well, where was I? You see him staring down at the water. Uh, he's there with his fork, waiting to punish them. You know, they thought they could hide their graft behind deception, but in the end, there is no hiding, because Curly Beard will find you out. You'll always leave some ripple. Any act of deception has some consequence to it. 
What are, what's that? Uh, I need to drink more coffee. I can't quite. What a tangle web we weave when we first deceive. Is that it? What a tangle web we weave when we first deceive. Kind of an interesting notion here that like a spider's web, if you ever watch this, you touch one little part and it has ripples all throughout the web. And the spider knows then that something is on the web. When we first try to deceive people by graft, it creates a web. And there are, in, there are consequences. There are little ripples all throughout our lives in being deceptive by graft with other people. And eventually, Curly Beard is going to see that ripple and grab us with this. That is, we will suffer the consequences of the graft. Maybe, I don't know, some people by fortune or luck or whatever don't suffer the consequences of being deceptive this way in their life. You may know some people like this. But what he is arguing, as Dante is arguing, somebody is going to suffer the consequences of this because it has created a ripple. It has created a something maladjusted, wrongly lived, and this is going to harm somebody. Oftentimes, or of course Dante's depiction of this, there's a hell that catches up with people's vice. But oftentimes, people's children, people's friends, will get curly beards fork. And that would be a horrible realization to come to, wouldn't it? I guess some people can be so hard of heart that it wouldn't bother them that their children suffer Curly Beard's punishment for their own deception. Maybe so. All right. Now, this is the last one that we'll see today. An interesting group of people down here, and these are called the hypocrites. The hypocrites. He starts this off with a parable of the mouse and the frog. And what that story is about, I need to sit down for just a second, is um, the frog, no, no, the mouse wants to get across a river. And the frog, in, in particular, is malicious towards the mouse and says that he will allow the mouse to get on his back. And he'll take him across the river. But actually the frog has bad intentions. And so he ties the mouse's leg to his leg. Telling the mouse, this will secure you on my back. But what he's wanting to do is to dive and drown the mouse. Okay, you with me? All right. But what happens as they're going out and they start to dive, the frog is on the... A hawk is up on the on the edge of the river, sees the mouse, comes down and claps the mouse, flies off, and guess who else he pulls up? The frog. The frog thought he could get by with this, but he didn't. He suffered the same consequences that he wanted to bring upon the mouse. Well, Dante uses this as sort of a parable for hypocrites. Can you see any connection being a hypocrite? And then what happens to the frog in this? I know it... it requires us to use our imagination. Well, let's see if I can help make that clearer as we walk through this. Okay, he is walking down into this uh, pit. And this is a place reserved just for these hypocrites. About us, now, about us now in the depth of the pit, we found a painted people, weary, weary and defeated. Slowly in pain, they paced it round and round. All wore great cloaks cut to as a simple a size. The outside is all dazzle, golden and fair. 
the inside lead, so heavy that Frederick's capes compared to those would seem as light as air. Frederick the king who wore this very heavy cloak. O weary mantle for eternity. Now, what it is, is that Dante sees these people walking in this circle. And they have on a Benedictine cloak. That is, they look like monks. And they dazzle. It's, it's attractive. But on the inside of those cloaks are heavy lead weights. And so they're, they're, born, they're, they're weighted down by these cloaks. This is the punishment for hypocrites. What a hypocrite does is misuse words for their own advantage. That is, they'll say one thing but actually mean another. That is, they don't use words as words should be used. They use words. They think they can manipulate words. They think like media images. You can just divorce it from any kind of reality in the world, which we're all so familiar with these days. It's a, sometimes you're thinking, well, what is real and what is not? It's like we're all in a matrix in a sense. You can manipulate media images so much where you can kind of create your own reality. Well, that's exactly what hypocrisy does. That is, I'm not bound to the meaning of these words. I'm not bound to use language as a gift of communication, of connection with other people, a way of you know, relating and doing things with other people. Think how indispensable words are. I mean, you see me here. This sounds like a silly rhetorical question, but how do you know I have a soul? How do you know I have a soul? That I have a personal center like you have. A seed of, of voluntary choices, of emotions, of intentions, desires. How do you know I have one of those? Because I look this way? Because all bald guys have souls? No. Professors wearing glasses and bow ties, they must have souls? No. How do you know? It's through the power of language. Without language, we would just be utterly isolated in the world. Language is what connects us. Makes us people with one another. And ultimately, would we know anything about God other than speculation if there was not also a divine language? God speaks to us. In the beginning was what? The Word. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the Word. We have the Word of God. The Holy Spirit comes and pours out the words to people there at Pentecost. We relate to God because God has given us a language in which we can relate to God. This is probably, next to you know God's mercies, the most important thing we have in our lives, and that's language. And so when we misuse it, it is a serious violation. I think we need to do, you know, recover that in our culture. We, we feel so, what, <coughs> nonchalant about words, um, so uh, arbitrary with what they can mean. We'll make them mean anything we want to. But, you know, we've become almost sort of callous about how words, language can be manipulated and used any way we want to for our own personal advantages and so on. But it is a major assault against reality to think we can be so cavalier with language. <laughs> Let, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, um, this may worry you about my campus, but uh, a number of years ago we had some pretty serious discussions on campus and a few kind of meetings about whether it's ever permissible for a professor to use cuss words in class. And some people would say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, I sort of cleared out a little space and threw a fit on that one. Not that I'm a prude about it, because 
come with me on a golf course and you'll find out that I'm not a prude about language. As I will hurl a club, I'll chase it with a vec- invective. Um, uh, but uh, I said this, I mean, of any place that, that people are committed to the value of language, it ought to be at a university next to the sanctuary. It ought to be at a university. Just as a carpenter uses hammers, a surgeon will use a scalpel, uh, uh, electrician will use wire. What is my tool? My tool is language. And if the only way I can make a point is using a word that doesn't carry meaning other than just the kind of offense of the word, then I am a poor teacher. And I made the case we ought to fire people. And if they're tenured, we'll, we'll make them you know, pick up garbage or something. Um, if, if the only way that they think they can really get a point across is by using cuss words. Now, if you want to cuss, go outside. But this is my tool. And if any place ought to revere and treasure the power of language, like I said, it ought to be in the sanctuary. It ought to be in a university. I, th- this is my attempt to try to see why is this such serious stuff? What, what's wrong with hypocrisy? Why not be a hypocrite? Why not? Uh, Plato, and I'll stop with this, uh, Plato talked about what's called the Gagi's Ring. that ring a bell with any of you? you ever read about the Gagi's Ring? It's a thought experiment. The Gagi's Ring was mythological. You get a ring and you put it on, you know, much like you know, the Lord of the Rings, you become invisible. And he raises his possibility. If you could become invisible, what would you get away with? No one would ever know. Not even God. Now, that's a presumptuous thing to say, but just hypothetically, no one would ever know once you had on the Geiger's ring what you did. What would you get away with? And he raises that. He says, this is a test question. You find out if you're really a virtuous person or not. If you really are committed to the good or not. If you're committed to that just which gives you satisfaction and fulfills your preferences, you will get by with what you can. Because your preferences will guide you all the time. Your desires... Your own interests will always guide you. But if you're committed to something bigger than yourself, greater in reality than what you are in your own life, then no. You will be the same person with the ring on or with it out. Okay. Same thing with our words. Uh, Hypocrisy is like putting on that ring. I can do anything I want to. And I think I can get by with it. And in the end, according to um, uh, Dante, you're not going to get by with it. Uh, We are here... Wearing that robe. This is not a very clear picture, but here they are, Virgil and Dante, looking at these people clothed like this. Okay, one last thing and then I'll conclude. It's interesting that he uses the Benedictine cloak. I think this is referring to ecclesiastical people who are hypocritical. What's the commandment? I shall honor the name of God, never misuse the name of God. Many people were misusing their ecclesiastical positions. They were, you know, preach a flowery sermon, but be corrupt on the side. They would tell other people to live up to the commandments of God, but they were, you know, adulterers and grafters and all that. And so what Dante does is that he puts them in hell wearing this cloak of lead and they're just walking in circles. They've created a weight. They thought they could liberate their words and use them any way they wanted to. But the consequence, those words now are heavy on them and they're a burden for eternity to wear the, uh, the ill consequences of their hypocrisy. All right. My time is almost up. Anybody have a question or a comment about this? Any of you afraid of going to hell? 
It's all kind of indicting in a way. It really is. Are you above hypocrisy? Are you above graft? Are you above thinking I can manipulate things and language the way I want to? None of us are. All of us are tempted by this. And this is one of the reasons why, though this is a medieval text written in ways that we don't think about much anymore, nonetheless is a very astute text for us to consider. These are the things we all struggle with. All right, I'll I'll conclude with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, we humble ourselves to Thee knowing that You are the truth, the way, and the life. And convict us, Lord, to live as though we do know what those things are. And to this we give honor. Amen.